Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson, and you're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. That boy had the highest of expectations, and he heard that Jesus would fill him up. Maybe something got lost in the language. If this was full, then why bother? This is the opening stanza of a song by Cademan's Call, a Christian band from several years back. The song is called simply Expectations. It's about a man who decided to give faith in Jesus a try, but was disillusioned by the way his experience of Christianity didn't match his expectations. The chorus continues, this was not the way it looked on the billboard, smiling family beaming down on the interstate. I wonder if you can identify with a man in this song. Perhaps you assume that when you became a Christian, all your problems would go away, or at least get a little easier. Now you wrestle with doubt, insecurity about your own salvation, anger with God because of trials and hardships in your life. Maybe you feel like you've been lied to by pastors and churches who painted faith in Jesus as a joyful, inspiring, exciting journey with constant mountaintop experiences and then heaven when you die. That's the image of the Christian life that was sort of presented to you and you feel like that's just dishonest. Or maybe you haven't been thrown off course by the sufferings you've endured. But you're a little embarrassed to invite your friends to church or to invite them, more importantly, into a relationship with Jesus because you're not sure how to handle the tension between the hopeful message of Christianity and our often disappointing experience in the world. If any of those describe you, then Jesus' words of warning to his disciples in the last part of John 15 may have a particular relevance and importance for you. As we follow Jesus in a fallen world, it is essential for us to be armed with a right understanding of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called the cost of discipleship, and a fervent faith in the goodness and presence of Christ in the midst of our messy lives. So if you have a copy of God's Word, we're going to be in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. And just for context, this is the last night that Jesus spends with His disciples before He goes to the cross. And in fact, in mere probably moments, perhaps hours from this conversation, Jesus will be arrested and the process that leads to His death will begin. And so he's giving his disciples parting instructions, if you will. Once I'm gone, here's how to carry on my work in the world and how to keep your faith alive. The first half of chapter 15 was all about staying vitally connected to Jesus. He used this analogy of the grapevine. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And apart from me, you can bear no fruit. So the, the branch that is connected to Jesus, who lets the words of Jesus abide in him and who remains connected 
will bear much fruit. And so Jesus is saying, you're going to go, you're going to do my work, you're going to carry on the work that I've been doing. The only way to do that is to stay connected to me through true faith. And so now he turns a bit. The conversation turns a little darker, beginning in verse 18 of John 15. And we'll read down through the first part of verse 4 of chapter 16. It reads this way. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So in these words of our Lord, we see four statements, four truths about persecution. Clearly the theme of these verses is about hardship and suffering that will come into the lives of Jesus' followers because they are Jesus' followers. Because of their faith in Him, hardship will come, pain will come, opposition will come. That's persecution. And so we find four truths regarding this persecution throughout these, past, these verses. And so we'll just walk through these things one at a time. The first is simply the promise of persecution. The promise of persecution. In verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, the if there sounds more conditional or like hypothetical in English than it is in the original language. This is not really like, well, if it so happens that the world hates you, it's because it hated me. It's more like, since the world hates you, it hates you because it hated me first. This is a guarantee 
of suffering and persecution to come. And he makes that even more plain down in verse 20. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. All these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him. All right. So the promise of persecution. Jesus looks his disciples in the eye and he says, things are going to get hard. Things are going to get ugly. Far from the smiling family beaming down on the interstate in the Cadman's Call song. Following Jesus often looks like carrying a cross. That's what Jesus did after all. To follow in his footsteps is to suffer. The promise of persecution. Since I chose you out of the world, the world hates you. The world hates you. Because you're not theirs. You're not one of them. This is where that kind of famous phrase that we sometimes use about Christians comes from. To be in the world, but not of the world. You're not of them. You're not cut from the same cloth as the unbelieving world around you. They don't know God. They're not connected to Jesus, the vine, to refer back to the earlier part of this chapter. You're not like that. You've been renewed. You've been redeemed. You've been brought out of that darkness and that brokenness and that fallenness and connected through faith to Jesus Christ and given His life, His righteousness, His holiness, His future. That's yours. You're not the same as the world anymore. There is a fundamental distinction to make. Jesus is not embarrassed to make that distinction. There's a hard line between the church and the world. I think it's important that we maintain that distinction. And we need to take from Jesus this warning. If we're going to maintain the distinction of church and world, if we're going to be like Jesus, if we're going to be following in Jesus' footsteps and taking His words seriously, we are promised persecution. Hardship will come because of your faith in Jesus Christ. He reminds them in verse 20 of something he told them back in chapter 13. A servant is not greater than his master. In chapter 13, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples, you may remember. And then he instructed them to serve one another in the same way, by lowering themselves for the good of one another. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So there he's saying a servant is not greater than his master, and I have lowered myself to humbly serve you. Therefore, you ought to do the same. Now he takes that same principle, a servant is not greater than his master, and applies it to the reality of suffering that will come into the lives of a follower of Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. If the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. It will persecute you as well. Well, Jesus, we were cool with that servant not greater than his master thing when you were just telling us to serve one another, right? But now you're saying that we're going to be treated the same way that you are? We're about to watch you, like, get arrested and beaten and crucified? That doesn't sound so fun anymore. If this is full, then why bother, right? Well, what will this persecution look like? If you skip down a little bit in the passage, he tells us 
down at the beginning of chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. He says, they will put you out of the synagogues, and the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. So, exclusion. So for, the, for Jesus' immediate audience, these 11 disciples, remember the 12 minus Judas, who is now off to betray him, for these 11 disciples, the exclusion would be in the form of the religious community uh, in Judaism rejecting them, not allowing them to participate in their rituals and, and things anymore, and, and seeing them as, uh, as outsiders and rejects and exiles. So there will be an exclusion that comes from the society at large, because remember, that is the society they lived in. Their culture, their society was a religious Jewish context. So to be excluded from religious Jewish life was to be excluded from public life, period. So the, the persecution that would come to the disciples of Jesus would come partly in the form of exclusion from the public life of the community. And so I think by implication, you can follow that forward to our own day and to where we are. Our, our culture, our society is not as religious, at least not formally, as religious a society as this one was, but to be excluded from the basic institutions and mechanisms and rhythms of community life in our world is a form of persecution. And I think you could see probably at least the seeds of that kind of exclusion based on our Christian faith happening even now. As you see religious liberties in the nation being sort of trampled upon and, and removed and public attitude toward basic orthodox traditional Christian beliefs, especially regarding things like the sexual ethics of Jesus and the Bible, just to say what Christians have said for 2,000 years is to be treated with hostility by our culture and by the world around us. And so we don't that will suffer more and more exclusion, I think, from the society around us. Maybe even on a more personal level, exclusion like just relational rejection. Oh, you're one of those? Oh, that's what you believe? Oh, you're into that Jesus stuff? That might cost you relationships. Maybe family members who won't look at you the same way because you follow Jesus. Maybe people at work who sort of give you that funny look, oh yeah, he's one of those guys, one of the, those religious fanatics, right? Maybe you get called a bigot or something on Facebook, right? Now, the extent of persecution goes way farther than just exclusion, because Jesus tells us next, he tells his disciples, that those who kill you will think they are offering service to God. And so this persecution could even get to the point of death to the point of giving their life, of martyrdom. And in fact, that's precisely what begins to happen as the New Testament unfolds and as Christian history unfolds. Exclusion from the community and even martyrdom. And not just martyrdom, but martyrdom by religious people. This is a religious zealotry. These are the people who the Jews in this context who worship God, or at least said that they worship God, who rejected Jesus as Messiah and therefore rejected this group of apostles and this growing group of Christians who received Jesus and put them to death 
thinking that they're serving God. The most obvious example of that in the New Testament is Paul, who would himself become an apostle. He was persecuting Christians. He was on the road to a town called Damascus to arrest Christians and drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried and probably stoned when Jesus interrupted him and introduced himself to him on the way. This is a religious zealotry leading to their persecution and their martyrdom. Now, our experience, again, our experience of persecution in our day and time and culture is not as extreme as this. It might get there, but it's not as extreme as this right now. It'll come in in smaller things, in relational snubs, uh, or in sideways glances, or comments that are unfavorable or uncharitable, exclusion from certain things, religious liberties being infringed upon. But if you look through the New Testament and you look through history, Jesus' prediction or his promise of persecution proves true on an epic scale. The apostles themselves will be persecuted. We read of a few of their uh, uh, deaths in uh, the New Testament. And then uh, in the earliest days of Christianity, we have there's good early history, historical accounts outside of the Bible that point to the martyrdom of all of the other apostles. The one who probably lived the longest was John, who wrote this gospel, and he spent the last years of his life in exile on, an, on the Isle of Patmos. So um, the apostles themselves would be persecuted and eventually martyred. The early generations of Christians would be persecuted at first by Jews and then by the Roman Empire itself, systematically, right? So emperors would arise who would want to snuff out Christianity and they'd bring them into arenas to be mauled by lions. That actually happened just because you're a Christian. That was going on all the time. Skip forward a bit. During the European Reformations in the 16th and 17th centuries, thousands of Christians would be killed by others calling themselves Christians, even in the name of Jesus. The church, quote-unquote, is killing Christians because they are standing up for Jesus and faith alone as the means of salvation. Around the world today, some 100 million Christians live under the constant threat of arrest, torture, and execution because of their faith in Jesus. We're blind to it because it's not happening in our own backyard. But this is the reality that Christians across the world in many places live in day to day. Persecution is a mark of following Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, said, Suffering is the badge of the true Christian. The disciple is not above his master. Luther, referring to Martin Luther, reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ, and it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. Well, this is way different than the smiling family beaming down on the interstate. We need to straighten out our expectations. If we expect following Jesus means a rosy life of comfort and ease and wealth and everything that we want, 
and then a nice gentle passing on into eternity and it just gets even better. We need a dose of reality from Jesus here. If you follow me, you will suffer. Paul said just, as, just this plainly in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's a pretty exhaustive statement. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think that one application of this plain truth is that we should look at our own lives, consider our own relationships, consider our own communities, our own experiences, and ask ourselves the question, am I at any level being persecuted because of my faith in Jesus? And it might be accurate to say that if we are not experiencing any level of exclusion, rejection, opposition, because we're Christians, then maybe we're not really living a godly life in Christ Jesus. Maybe we've not really identified ourselves with Jesus enough. Obviously, things are not as extreme here as they are in other parts of the world, and so I'm not saying that if someone isn't knocking on your door threatening to kill you, you're not a Jesus follower. That's not what I'm saying. But it's worth reflecting on the level of our connectedness to Jesus, our commitment to Him. Are we all the way in for Jesus, or do we shy away? Do we not speak up when we should? Do we maybe participate in the same kinds of joking and and revelry and things that are happening all around us instead of keeping that distinction between church and world clear? On the other hand, if you are uh, uh, experiencing persecution, rejection, opposition, don't lose heart. Don't think that God must be mad at you or that he's left you. Why are things hard? This is just what Jesus said would happen. If you follow me, you're going to suffer. There will be persecution. So if that's your reality, rejoice. Take heart. You're right where he wants you to be. So we see the promise of persecution. The promise of persecution. Number two, the motive of persecution. In verses 21 through 25, Jesus tells us about the motives of those who persecute Jesus' followers. In other words, the reason behind their persecution. And it's basically this. The world hates God. He says this three times in these verses. Look at verse 21. Oops, I'm in the wrong place. Verse 21, he says, All these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So there he mentions both himself and the Father, because we know that Jesus was sent by the Father. He has said that to us throughout the Gospel of John. They're persecuting you on account of my name, because they don't know the Father. Verse 23. Whoever hates me, hates my Father also. So there's Jesus and the Father, and hatred of Jesus and the Father assigned to those who are persecuting the disciples. And then verse 24, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. 
They have seen and hated. This is not passive. This is not just indifference. They have seen Jesus and his works, and they hate him. And they hate his father. The world hates God. This echoes the theme of John 1, verses 10 through 12, the very beginning of this gospel, where John told us that he came to his own people, and his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He came to his own people, and they rejected him. They hated him, and they hated God the Father as well. Now, I don't think it always looks like or sounds like active, intentional hatred of God. But Jesus tells us here that's what's underneath it. Even for the one who proclaims to be an atheist, says God doesn't even exist, underneath that, that determined, dogged belief that there is no God is a hatred of God. Even the fact that they won't acknowledge His existence is an expression of their hatred, of the very idea of God, and certainly of His reality. Now, Jesus says some interesting things here. If I hadn't spoken to them, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. If I hadn't done the works that no one else did, then they wouldn't be guilty of sin. And that sounds kind of weird. I think it's the same idea that's expressed by Paul in Romans 7. In Romans 7, verses 7 through 12, Paul says that if it weren't for the law, that is the explicit commands of God in the Torah, he wouldn't have known he was a sinner. If it hadn't been for the command, you shall not covet, he wouldn't have realized that he was guilty of coveting. So in other words, the law of God acts like a mirror to sinful man, exposing our true spiritual condition. And I think Jesus is saying that his words and his works are doing the very same thing in the lives of people. In the same way, verse 22, his words, verse 24, his works among the world shine a light on their sin and so expose their wickedness. You remember John three nineteen. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Sin grows in the dark. I don't want to tell anybody about it. I don't want anybody to know about it. I don't want anybody wagging their finger at me and telling me that I shouldn't be doing it. So I'm going to keep it in the dark. That's our sinful instinct. That's what shame says. Keep it to yourself. They will understand. Nobody can help you. Just deal with it on your own. And so we recoil from the light that Jesus shines. And we hide in the dark. And I think that's what Jesus is saying here when he says, if I hadn't spoken to them, they wouldn't have been guilty. If I hadn't done the works of God, they wouldn't have been guilty of their sin. I think it's, he's like saying, they have seen in me the holiness and the radiance of my purity, and they reject it because their deeds are evil. He exposes their brokenness. Another interesting thing he says here is that the, the hatred of Jesus, the world's hatred of Jesus, is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. 
and he cites a psalm here, they hated me without a cause. In Psalm 69, David, the author, bemoans the unjust hatred of his enemies. Even though he himself is living a righteous life, he says in verse 4, more in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. That's what Jesus picks up and quotes right here. Jesus sees the wicked and unfounded opposition to David, God's anointed king of Israel, as a precedent for his own rejection by the people of Israel in his day. After all, Jesus is God's anointed king. And now the people have rejected him and hated him without cause. He's done nothing wrong. So here's the thing. When the world hates you, when the world rejects you and insults you, don't take it personally. That's hard. Don't take it personally. The world's hatred of you, though it's legit, isn't first about you. It's about God. I think that's why Jesus says in Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Let's care so much more about God's glory than our own that rejection by non-believers becomes an opportunity for diligent, compassionate prayer and evangelism. When people hate us because of our faith, instead of wiping the dust, you know, done with you, that should drive us to our knees to pray for their salvation and to speak words of truth and grace to them that they might come to know God because the only reason they hate you is because they hate God. Maybe God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the motive of this persecution is that the world hates God. Persecution is coming. It's promised. If you follow Jesus, if you stay connected to Him in the vine, uh, as the branch to the vine, if you live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Period. It's coming. When it comes, remember that the reason they're persecuting you is because they hate God. The world hates God. God. That is why they persecute His church and why they have no patience for Christian teaching and doctrine. Why they have absolute hostility and disdain for what to them sounds just outdated and traditional. They hate it because they hate God. And that comes across as hatred of us, His people. Third, we see in Jesus' words the witness of persecution, the witness of persecution. Look in verses 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. In the midst of ongoing pain and suffering at the hands of those who hate God and his people, disciples of Jesus are to cling fervently to the Great Commission. You remember the Great Commission? It's in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. 
Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. That's the mission of the church. That's why Imprint exists, to multiply disciples through gospel-centered worship, community, and service. That's why we're here. In the midst of suffering and hardship that comes to us because of our faith in Jesus, we need to be reminded of the mission that Jesus has given to his church and the opportunity for witness to Christ that this persecution brings us. Now, we're going to revisit verse 26 more next week along with the next verses in chapter 16 and spend some concentrated time exploring the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit. But for now, let me just draw your attention to what he's doing in this verse. He is bearing witness about Jesus. That's what the Spirit does. I will send you the Helper, and He will bear witness about Me. How does He do this? Through the witness of the disciples. The Holy Spirit doesn't just go on His own campaign and just shout from the skies about who Jesus is. He sends His people. He sends the disciples. He empowers them and fills them and dwells them and says, Go! And through the disciples' words and lives, the Holy Spirit bears witness about Jesus. Here's the deal. The warning that Jesus gives of persecution to come and the exhortation to endure it implies mission. The very fact that he warns the disciples that persecution is coming and tells them to be faithful underneath it implies mission. If Jesus did not have a mission for his disciples in the world, he could either just take them out of the world, right? As soon as he was crucified and rose from the dead, it could have been like all Christians, past, present, future, in heaven right now, and it's all done. Could have taken them out of the world, or he could have told them, go hunker down in a corner somewhere and avoid the world. In fact, some have taken that strategy throughout history. You've heard of monks, monasteries. There was a sense of separation from the world when kind of we're going to cloister ourselves off here to, to worship God and learn from Him and study His Word without engaging with the world. That's wrong-headed. Now, I want to be careful about that because actually through the, the studying and the writings of the monks, we actually have gained some really beautiful, rich devotional material that we can use in our own lives. So I'm not saying that the monks have not done anything good, but I'm saying that the impulse, the instinct to separate ourselves from the world and go hide in a bunker is the opposite of what Jesus is telling his disciples to do. The fact that he prepares them for the world's hatred and urges them to patiently endure it is an indication of the mission. What's the mission? Bear witness about Jesus that those whom the Father has given to him may believe and be saved. The very fact that Jesus says, persecution is coming, here's how to endure it, remember the Holy Spirit is with you, tells us he's got a job for us to do. He doesn't want us to go into hiding. He wants us to engage the world with the gospel. In the face of rejection, exclusion, and persecution from non-believers because of our faith in Jesus, we must not retreat from the world or go into turtle mode where we just hide in our shells. It's scary out there. I don't know what my kids are going to see and hear, or I do know what my kids are going to see and hear. A lot easier just to keep them in their rooms. 
I don't want to go out there. I don't want, I don't want to engage with this. It's too broken. It's too hard. People are too mean. We've got to remember the commission of our Lord Jesus to be his witnesses and yield ourselves to the Spirit of God who lives within us and let our words and actions point others to Jesus Christ. It's hard. It's costly. It's not easy. Take sacrifice. But the opportunity that we have for witness to Jesus in the midst of persecution is strategic and intentional and comes to us from the hand of our loving, sovereign Father. So Jesus gave us the promise of persecution. He told us about the motive of persecution. The world persecutes you because it hates God. And He told us about the witness of persecution, that as we endure it faithfully and bear witness to Jesus, we have the opportunity to partner with Him in His kingdom-building work. And then finally, He tells us where we're going to find the patience for persecution. In verse, chapter 16, verses 1 and 4. Verse 1, he says this, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And then down in verse 4, I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. He's been saying that to them. I'm telling you this now so that when it happens, you'll believe or you'll remember. And that's what happens. Once Jesus is crucified, once Jesus is raised, they start, the disciples start going, oh, this all makes sense now. I remember that he said that. And it all comes together. So he's preparing them. The warning helps us prepare for persecution. There is mercy in a warning. There is mercy in a warning. If it just came upon us all of a sudden, and Jesus had never told us it was coming, or if Jesus had done the opposite, like what, what a lot of pastors and churches seem to do and go, if you just turn your life over to Jesus, things are going to get better. It'll be fun. It'll be adventurous. It'll be exciting and inspiring. And then persecution comes. Wait a minute. This is not what I was sold. This is not what I was told would happen. So there is deep mercy in a warning about what's to come. Jesus says, listen, if you're going to follow me faithfully, the world will hate you. The world will persecute you. You will be hated. Because we know it's coming, we can brace ourselves for it. We can build up our faith in Jesus in order to withstand the blows when they come. Peter himself, among the, the original audience of these words from Jesus, says in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Jesus said the same thing in his Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Blessed? Why am I blessed? For great is your reward. The warning helps us prepare and the Spirit of God helps us persevere. 
I am telling you this so that you might not fall away. The word literally is stumble. In the context of John 15, I think falling away means coming disconnected from the vine. Proving yourself to be a branch that was never fully, truly, vitally connected to Jesus. So when he says, I'm telling you this so that you won't fall away, it's like plug in, believe all the way, pursue and follow with your whole heart. One of the most glorious passages in all of Scripture is in fact a defiant statement, a defiant declaration of the Christian's overcoming of the world's persecution comes in Romans chapter 8. Let me just read to you verses 35 to 39 of Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the confidence we need to carry into persecution. We know it's coming. We've been warned that it's coming. We might see glimpses of it now. It's probably going to get worse. We need to carry the confidence that comes from the unbreakable love of Christ for us. And know, as I endure this, as I bear witness to Jesus in the midst of it, He is holding me. A couple of thoughts to conclude here. First, the world should hate us because of the gospel, not because we're jerks. Just think we need to hear that sometimes and be reminded of that. Sometimes we're rude and arrogant and argumentative and then people are mad at us and we go, well, Jesus said the world would hate us. They're just hating me because I'm telling the truth. Sometimes people are hating us because we're mean. Sometimes people are hating us because we're shouting at the top of our lungs about our beliefs instead of patiently listening and understanding and guiding toward truth in Christ. I'm guilty of this too. Facebook and Twitter is probably the absolute worst thing that's happened to humanity on this front. Christians are such jerks on the internet. We've got to do better than that. We've got to do better than that. Let the pure presentation of the gospel be the only offense we commit toward those who are outside of Christ, those of the world. I've got a high school friend who's living an openly homosexual life, and he's far from God, and he recently came out on Facebook and said, you know, I'm wandering, and he grew up in the church, would have claimed even recent years to be a Christian, but he recently said, I'm rejecting it all, the church is is a bunch of baloney, the gospel they're selling is false, and he recently, I just yesterday came across a Facebook post saying, To any parents who are planning to send their kids to a Bible school or a church camp this summer, please be aware of what those churches are teaching. Don't send your kids somewhere that's going to tell them that they're a sinner. Just send them somewhere that's going to make them feel good and lift them up and enlighten them and inspire them. They don't need to hear that there's something wrong with them. That's a a joke. That's a mess, right? 
<laughs> Fair warning, if you send your kids to our VBS, we're going to tell them that they're sinners. Our biggest problem is that we're separated from God because of our sin, and we need a Savior to bear our sins for us. Jesus did that for us. That's what people need to hear. The world hates it. Even someone who grew up in the church, like my friend Scott, he looks at it and says, we don't need to hear that we're sinners. So the world would hate us because of the gospel, not because we're obnoxious. And number two, the presence of Jesus in our suffering and the knowledge that we are following the path that he walked should comfort our hearts in the midst of persecution and trials. I'll conclude with these words from Acts chapter 5, where Peter, James, and John, and some of these guys are preaching, and they get dragged before the Sanhedrin. That's the kind of highest court of the religious Jews. And they, you're going to stop preaching the gospel, and you just quit hearing about this Jesus fellow. They beat them, and they charge them, do not preach the gospel anymore. And of course, we know that they say, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to obey you or God, you know, you be the judge, but we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. And here's, here's what Acts 5.41 says as they left. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Friends, do we love the name of Jesus so deeply that suffering that comes to us on his account is a joy to us? is an honor to us. Praise God that he would count me worthy to suffer for his sake. I pray that he would develop that heart in us, that love for him and that faithfulness. Would you pray with me?